Up first, before our Sunday special edition presentation, I wanted to let you know that there's a countdown, 33 days until convention, The Power of the Big Book, your weekend of inspiration, education, motivation, and fellowship. The program has gone to be printed. Your name tags are be written out. Literature has been purchased. The chef has even determined the meals. We are so close to lights, camera, and action. Even the hotel is starting to get hot and hustling. The thrill is just coursing through my veins. We're just working out those little nitty-gritty details. So, did we get your registration? Should you double-check? Because we have some of the movers and shakers of OA Big Book scholars and historians packing their bags. And they will be coming to convention delivering a treatment for the disease of compulsive overeating. The 12 steps of recovery will be rolled out and you will leave this convention on Sunday, November 1st with the solution because a problem can be solved. Imagine for a moment the education and the skilled action to treat your compulsive overeating and being equipped to maintain the order of things with a confidence to go out there and pass it on to other suffering compulsive overeating overeaters. Can you believe it? All in one gigantic, fun-filled, tightly packed convention weekend. Register this minute. Go to www.avisionforyou.info and you'll find there all that you need to register for this unconventional convention on that website. And we will be looking for you. Good morning and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, September 27, 2015. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. The share ID for Friday, September 25th, is 8024. That's 8024. This morning, A Vision for You presents Ineffective Defense, the Ism of My Illness. The big book teaches us we have a twofold illness the allergy of the body, and the obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body is a bad problem. However, the big book teaches us we have a problem worse than that. The big book says it's our main problem. We've got a mental problem. We've got a problem with our mind. Ineffective defense. Powerless. No mental defense. We have no effective power with respect to our binge foods. We have no choice. The mental obsession condemns us to compulsively eat when we, when we don't want to, and the phenomenon of craving condemns us to continue eating once we start. We can't stop once we've started, and we can't stop from starting again. Our human resources, as marshaled by the will, are not sufficient. They fail utterly. We are doomed. Joining us this morning is Chelsea H., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Chelsea is dedicated to this design for living and is enthusiastic to carry this message of recovery. Welcome, Chelsea. Thank you, Leah. Can I be heard? Yes, sure can. Great. Good morning, visionaries. And um, I'm grateful for this opportunity to give freely of what I've been graced for as I continue this journey. And um, today we're going to talk about what's wrong with our minds and why, why do I need an entire psychic change? 
I'll um, qualify briefly. Um, I've been in the room since 88. I came in through an OAAA combination, and I tinkered around the edges of this program for decades. Uh, I'm a binger, purger, laxative person, along with being a compulsive overeater. The spectrum is wide. But in March of 2013, I went to a big book workshop, and I heard a message of hope and possibility for the agnostic. The workshop was we agnostic. You know, that's another one of these spiritual ahas. And I heard the testimony from three real compulsive overeaters of how they had escaped, and um, they were my three Ebbies. So afterwards, I went up to one, and I... um, what she says, I had tombstones in my eyes, and I guess I did because she took me by the hand and walked me through these pages. She let me have my experience with it, and I did, and it was electrifying. And today, as a result, fast forward to today, I'm still an agnostic in recovery, and I'm living in the solution one day at a time as long as I stay spiritually fit, and this is part of my exercising my spiritual muscles. So we're going to be guiding through Chapter 3 today more about alcoholism, which I like to call the um, ineffective defense. It's our ism of my illness. I heard a buddy of mine in program use, she said, <laughs> she used that word ism, and um, she said, this whole chapter is all about my ism, and I just kind of embraced that as part of what this chapter means to me. So if you're new to this program, if you're, if you're new on the line, if you never worked the steps, if you have worked the steps, or if you're anything like me who had been around the rooms for decades, um, using the big book to pass it from person to person and just read the paragraphs, or like myself, I had the OA 12 and 12 commentary. I hadn't done anything with this program, but um, read the commentary on the program of recovery that's outlined in the big book. So um, I couldn't relate, but perhaps something that's going to be shared here today can um, help at least crest the need in you to pursue this program of recovery and hope and possibility. So let's jump right in. All right, page 30. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes that. He cannot control his drinking or likes to be told that he can control or drink his He is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove that we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, we will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people, or presently may be, must be smashed. So this information for me here in this part of the text so far, just right out the gate, First of all, most of us, he said, most of us were unwilling. That was part of the problem was I didn't want to admit that I was a compulsive overeater. I'm also a recovered drunk. I was more reticent to say that I was that as opposed to saying that I was a compulsive overeater. It was, it was demoralizing. It's something that I wanted to not possibly be associated with. And this idea of an obsession, and as I look and study this work, obsession I've been taught is a thought. It's a, a lie, a lie that we believe in our thinking. And we are different. 
And unless we accept that we are different, then we're going to keep doing what I said earlier, countless vain attempts to prove that we're like other people. And we'll have this illusion, this false representation, and this representation is outside of ourselves, I've learned. I've learned that it's been like, it's a, you can liken it to a mirage. And the example that I have heard speakers say is if you think of yourself walking through a hot parking lot and you see a, what looks like a puddle, by the time you get up on it, you just realize it was, it's not. It's not there. It's not really happening. And the, um, the delusion, the lie that's in our thinking is one that's inside. It's internal. It's in our minds. So the greatest obstacle that we face is that we have to concede fully that we are this thing to our innermost selves and we'll learn this, it says. We learned. It's a process. We're not going to know this coming right out because we've been in denial. We haven't been able, our minds are broken. We haven't been able to do any kind of logical or reasonable thinking to keep us from picking up in the first place. And this is what that paragraph was telling me about. And then it goes on to give us a much more um, deeper look here. It says to give us a definition of what it might be. We alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. We are convinced, a man, that alcoholic of our types are in a grip of a progressive illness. Over a considerable period, we get worse, never better. We are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does it appear to be any kind of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. We've tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there's been brief recovery, followed always by a worse relapse. Physicians are, who are familiar with alcoholism will agree there's no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. So let's unpack that because it's a, quite a bit of information here for us. And this explains for me about me doing these 90 meetings and 90 days and going to all these weigh-and-pay places and the countless pieces of equipment for exercise that were going to resolve this problem and all the books and all the other things that are up in the attic collecting dust right now. I am not convinced. I'm not even convinced that I am this thing, let alone that I'm in some kind of grip that's progressive. So I'm going to throw everything at it myself under my own self-propulsion. And then once the obsession takes over, it will dominate me. It will dominate me to continue to try under my own steam to fix this thing. And it's telling me here that I'm like a person with no legs. I'll never grow new ones, but I keep trying to walk without a prosthetic legs. I keep trying to do it without help. I keep thinking that under my own propulsion, somehow I'm totally limbless, but yet I'm going to be able to do what I think I can do, what others do, with legs. And I won't accept the fact that without help, I will never, it's not going to happen. Now, there may be a time where I can briefly come up with some kind of way to, to crawl along, but I'll still end up not being able to be in the race. 
So that will be followed by me being demoralized and still worse relapse. And it says that it will always, it will always be like that. All the remedies that I tried, all that my little mind could come up with, all everything I threw at it, it's not going to happen. It's not going. Everything will go back to always being a compulsive overeater. And you hear the pickle analogy on this line a lot about how you put a cucumber in brine, it turns to pickle, and it won't turn back. So that is my experience with that. And it goes on to say that despite all we can say, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe that they're in this class. By every form of self-deception and experimentation, they'll try to prove themselves exceptions to the rule, therefore non-alcoholic. If anyone is showing inability to control his drinking, can do a right about face, and drink like a gentleman, our hats are off to him. Heaven knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people. Here are some of the methods we've tried. Drinking beer only, limiting the number of drinks, never drinking alone, drink, never drinking in the morning, drinking only at home, never having it in the house, never drinking during business hours, drinking only at parties, switching from scotch to brandy, drinking only natural wines, agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing off forever with and without a solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to health farms, sanitariums, and accepting voluntary commitment to asylums. We could increase the list ad infinitum. So I ask myself here at this part of the work, what are some of the things that I have done? And, uh, and the list is ad infinitum. I can go on and on about how I um, tried to have a liquid diet, how I would only, back in the day when dieting was popular, they had candies called AIDS, A-Y-D-S. Oh, I could nosh on those, just eating them, just eating them one after another. Then, they, then there were shakes, and, the, and there was the pepper diet, the Kayon pepper diet, and I don't, I, the, the countless, countless memberships to gyms, the wasted money, money, money. All of that went down, and yet and still, I was still a compulsive overeater and a drunk in my case because my beverages with my meals were alcohol. I drank wine like it was Kool-Aid. I had glass after glass, champagne. I became a champagne drinker, just drinking it with my meals. Same thing with the abusiveness with the laxatives and stuff. All that was supposed to solve this problem. Who in the world sits down with their meal and drinks an entire bottle of liquid laxatives so that they don't have to suffer the consequences because the meal is falling off the plate and I want to go back for more? I can't possibly have that evidence uh, pile up on me. I'm over 300 and some 25 pounds, and nobody's going to notice yet and still, you know, I'm going to have to act like I'm eating normal. Nobody's going to notice that I'm having a tr problem with um, food or that I'm overweight. Self-deception and experimentation, it was the norm for me. And I would not accept that I was like a man with no legs, that I had lost the ability to control my eating. And I didn't want to just control and enjoy it. I wanted to throw down. I wanted to eat like I wanted to eat and not put on weight. That's the bottom line. That was the, really the line. And I didn't want to suffer the repercussions of the physical side, the, the, the knees buckling, the joints giving out. And with the purging, the esophagus issues, the teeth, 
I can't even get involved with how much teeth and dental things come out of it. Experimentations, self-deception, deceiving myself that somehow, some kind of way, that I was going to be able to use some of these methods to control my drinking. And it just wasn't happening. So the authors here are telling me that all this, um, they want me to identify in. They want me to identify in. And they're saying to me that I cannot have just one bite. I cannot just have one engagement in bulimia. I cannot just have one engagement in restricting, not eating for days at a time, because that will give me control. I can control it that way. I have enough control where I don't even have to eat. So the spectrum is wide, but all those methods fail. All those methods fail, and admitting you're an alcoholic is the problem. So it says, we don't like to pronounce any individual an alcoholic, but you can quickly diagnose yourself. Step over to the nearest bar room and try some controlled drinking. Try to drink and stop abruptly. Try it more than once. It will not take you long to decide if you are honest with yourself about it. It may be worth a bad case of the jitters to get a full knowledge of your condition. And my own experience with this here is that I could not go to a buffet where they had fried chicken because nobody's going to get any more. And it's not going to be enough for me to say, okay, I'll go up and I'll have one piece only. I'll just have one piece, and, and I'll have vegetables and everything, and that will be it for my meal. I might be able to do that. I might be able to do that. But on the way home, my mind is going to be finagling. How can I get that effect again? How can I get that effect, that effect that Dr. Silkworth talks about, the effect, that ease and comfort that comes from the first bite? It's, it's in the back of my mind. Once I've, once I've triggered that allergy, once I've set it off, and you've learned about all that before we get to this part. So if you're new on the line and you're kind of thinking, what's the allergy? Before you get to this part of the work, that has been covered. That has been covered that we have a twofold disease. And Dr. Silkworth has said that only an entire, an entire psychic change would fix that. That's in the doctor's opinion. So we're not just jumping into this part about the mind. We're not just finding out why our mind is broken, just opening the book and we're here. There's work that's done up to this point, so you'll be clear. But what it's telling you right now is that if you look at your behavior, when you were in that food, and if you can identify in with something that's being said here today, then you might be able to assess for yourself. You can diagnose for yourself if you're a real compulsive overeater. You can make that determination on your own. I ate when I didn't want to eat, right? And I couldn't remember the last time that my pants split open when I'd been down to pick up keys because I was in something that was way too tight and too small for me, but I thought that I hadn't outgrown it. None of, the, none of that comes into mind. The negative consequences are not even thought about. So it's, it's a, they're saying to me here that it may be worth, you know, stepping over to that uh, bar room or that buffet or into that nearest restaurant and see if you can do that. See if you can do it and see if you can stop abruptly. See if you can stop abruptly. And maybe you can, maybe you can't, but you'll have to do that. It's as though there's no way of proving it. We believe that early in our drinking careers, most of us could have stopped drinking. 
But the difficulty is that few alcoholics have enough desire to stop while it's yet time. We have heard of a few instances where people who showed definite signs of alcoholism were able to stop for a long period because of an overpowering desire to do so. And now they give us the example. They give us an example of this um, phenomenon that they're talking about, this ability to having a strong desire to stop, and being able to stop for a long period. This is the physical we're still dealing with. The man of 30. A man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He was very nervous in the morning about these bouts and quieted himself with liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw he was getting nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. He made up his mind that until he had been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man, he remained bone dry for 25 years and retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to a belief that practically every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came the carpet slippers in a bottle. In two months, he was in the hospital, puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a while, making several trips to the hospital in the meantime. Then, gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal. Every attempt failed. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead in four years. Well, this is, again, the progression of the illness. Now, he had been doing spree drinking. For me, that was my binge eating. I had been doing binge eating, right? And if I had a reason, say, the wedding coming up, the big wedding would be coming up. And I, um, you know, would be able to not eat for a while so I can get into that particular outfit. But invariably, after the wedding was over, I would be eating again, if not at the wedding, and that probably would be the case because I would not be able to not pick up. And I might be able to, here's another example, I might be able to go a year. I've gone a year of being, um, quote, unquote, oh, gosh, I'm doing air quotes, abstinent. I've been abstinent only. And I have not treated the mental part. And I have invariably picked up. And, and it, it could have been a year. I'll come into the rooms. I'll, I'll moan, I'll bemoan the fact that the program doesn't work, and I'll talk with my fellows about all the problems, and then I'll grab hold of somebody's food plan. I'll use that. It will work for a while. I'll lose the weight, I'll leave the rooms, and the food will beat me back in, and the cycle will continue over and over. And there will be long periods, but I will fall victim that those intervals, although brief, I will be eating because I will think that it's okay for me to get a two-piece and a biscuit, and I won't want any more. I won't be going then to, the, to go get a couple cheese steaks on the side. I won't be standing at a Chinese food counter getting $40, $50 worth of Chinese food, devouring it on the way home, and then ordering something else when I get in the house because I'm just so peckish. So that's, that is the, the dynamic. That's the dynamic, despite having a long period of abstinence. A long period of abstinence will not restore 
my lost ability. Remember, I lost the ability to control my eating. I've lost the ability to control, and I can't do that. And I don't recognize it, and I can't see it. And if I can't see it, I can't do anything about it because I don't know what I don't know, and I can't see what I can't see because I'm living in an illusion with delusionary thoughts telling me that I can do this and it's going to be okay this time. It says, this case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we remain sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here's a man who at 55 years found he was just where he had left off at 30. We have seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we are in short time as bad as ever. If we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservations of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. And that has my, been my experience when I have left my mind untreated. I have not been able to look at the demonstrations that in my life. I have not been able to recall the demonstrations the trips to the doctors because of the esophagus problems, because my knees are just so bad I can't even hardly walk. My hip joints are killing me. The compressions in my back, all these, I can't sit up long. Oh, you're going to end up wearing, you're going to end up having to wear a certain kind of hosiery. You're going to have to wear this. You're going to have to take that, this pill, that pill. The demonstrations again and again that compulsive overeating is killing me and that I am a compulsive overeater, I will commence to drink, to eat, after my long period of abstinence. And then I'm worse than ever. Not only had I lost the weight, but I came back in with extra. Every single time, always. It said it always happens like that. So if I'm really planning on quitting once and for all and for good, if I am, then I can't have any kind of lurking notions in the back of my mind that somehow I'm going to be able to have that two-piece in a biscuit and not want more and be satisfied with that's all I can have and be content with that. It's not going to happen. And I can't have the lurking notion that I'm going to be able to have a couple glasses of wine. I'm not. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to do that. But I, have, I can't see what I can't see, and I don't know what I don't know. And until my mind is treated to deal with that obsessive thinking, then there's nothing I can do but to go on to the bitter end. And it's because of what we're about to read that I do it. Here's my ism coming up. Young people may be encouraged by this man's experience to think they can stop, as he did, on their own willpower. We doubt if many of them can do it. But none will really want to stop and hardly one of them because of the peculiar mental twist already acquired. We'll find he can win out. Several of our crowd, men of 30 or less, had been drinking only a few years, but they found themselves as helpless as those who had been drinking 20 years. So this hard truth here is doesn't matter. It says that several of our crowd... He was one of us. He was the real deal. They are one of us. They're, they're a part of us. Several of our crowd had been drinking for only a few years, yet they were just as helpless as those who had been drinking for 20. So the truth, the hard truth about this whole thing is that it, to be gravely affected, 
One does not necessarily have to drink a long time, nor take the quantity some of us have. We don't have to be eating buckets of fried chicken. We don't have to be eating whole pizzas two or three at a time. We don't have to be eating off of other people's plates and everything like that to be gravely affected. This is particularly true with women. Potential female alcoholics often turn into the real thing, the real thing, and are gone by recall in a few years. Certain drinkers who would be greatly insulted if called alcoholics, that's me as the compulsive overeater, don't dare call me a compulsive overeater, are astonished at their inability to stop. We who are familiar with the symptoms see large numbers of potential alcoholics, among them young people everywhere, but try to get them to see it. And I heard um, one of our friends on the line, you know, Lori, I love him, and um, his whole take was that this was part to be inclusive, to include everybody, all-inclusive, never exclusive, too, because if we have to identify in, there has to be something for everybody so that we can identify in. Because if we don't know what we don't know and we can't see what we can't see, we're just walking around asleep thinking we're awake and that this stuff is true, and it's not. So as we look back, it says, we feel we had gone on drinking many years beyond the point where we could quit on our own willpower, right? If any questions whether he has entered the dangerous area, let him try leaving liquor alone for one year. If he's a real alcoholic and very far advanced, there's scant chance of success. In early days of our drinking, we occasionally remain sober for a year or more. Here's that long stretch of time. Becoming serious drinkers again later. We get worse, never better. Though you may be able to stop for a considerable period, you may yet be a potential alcoholic. We think few to whom this book will appeal can stay dry anything like a year. Some will be drunk the day after making their resolutions, most of them within a few weeks. And if you're anything like I am when I'm face down in the food, it could be in a couple of minutes. I could have just eaten, and I would be standing in front of that fridge, looking, taking inventory of that box. What can I have next, or what can I have for lunch when I just had a huge breakfast? And it, it baffled as to why am I standing in front of the fridge? Why am I even in the kitchen again? So with your favorite binge foods, try leaving it alone. I had to do that when I was really getting serious with this uh, identifying my alcoholic foods and all. One of the items for me that was treacherous was peanut butter, and I refused to let it go. It was going to be my protein after all. And I had to decide if was it something that had to go. Leave it alone. If I did not, if I had to have it, it had to go. But it says here that if you can do that, you know, for those who are unable to drink moderately or eat moderately like me, the question is how to stop altogether. And that's assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. So if we admit we're unable to drink moderately. From that first, that paragraph we read above it, if we find out that we have to have that item that we leave alone, we can't even leave it alone for a day, let alone a year, if you can, you know, if you can admit that, then it says there the question is how in the world do we stop altogether? If you want to stop, maybe you still want to eat. 
Because I know myself, like during the cold months and stuff, I just said, the heck with it, I'm going to eat. They got a lot of big sweaters and stuff. I could throw something on, no problem, you know. But if I had a real desire, it says, whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost power to choose, powerless lost that power to choose whether or not I'm going to eat, whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt that we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism, of my ism. This is the baffling feature of it. As we know it, as they know it, the authors, the authors of the text, this utter inability to leave it alone no matter how great the wish or necessity, powerless. No matter how much I want, I cannot stay stopped. I can't stop from starting again. What the heck is wrong with my mind? Powerless. That obsession takes over without our permission and it wreaks havoc, and then it causes the delusionary lie that this time is going to be different. This time, Chelsea, you are, this is going to be different this time, okay? This time, if you just eat organic and you only eat um, whole grain stuff, you're going to be okay. This time, that was going to work. You know, two loaves of bread, bread later, you know, I'm banging on the table asking how did I end up here again. How then shall we help our readers, it says, determine to their satisfaction whether they're one of us. The experiment of quitting for a period of time would be helpful, but we think, render, we, think we can render an even greater service to the alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. Here is the crux of the problem, because our actions are born in thought. We hear this a lot, too, on the line. Our actions are born in thought, and that's the crux of the problem is what happens before we pick up, before we take that first bite. So it goes on to say here that they're going to talk about now why we resume eating after determining that it's killing us. After the doctor just told me, you know what? you're going to end up walking out of here and having a heart attack. And I walk out of there and I go to a restaurant so that I can be served, so that I can not only have, and I usually go to an Irish pub or something, so that way I can drink and eat comfortably. Just after being told that I need to stop, I'm going to drop dead, I've been told. I've been given information like that, and I still resume eating. So what sort of thinking, it says, dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate, the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree, which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy, are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? Of what is he thinking? Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War II record. He is a good salesman. Everybody likes him. He's an intelligent man, normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. 
In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated that he had to be committed. On leaving the asylum, he came into contact with us. We told him what we knew of alcoholism and the answer we found. He made a beginning. His family was reassembled, and he began to work as a salesman for the business he had lost through drinking. All went well for a time, but he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. To his consternation, he found himself drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in a serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the asylum if, we kept, if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family, for whom he had a deep affection. Well, let's unpack that a little bit. Because, first of all, it talks about how Jim, he's a charming man, right? He's got a business. He's got an automobile business. And back then, that's big money, back where we were talking about the period in which they're um, in, in the 30s. So he had a commendable World War II record, right? Good salesman. Seems like everything's pretty cool here for Jim. Normal so far as we can see. And what did that look like for me on the outside, especially when I was in the bulimia? And, I, and the weight would, I could keep the weight off by praying to the porcelain goddess. I would have the appearance that I was okay, but inside I was, I was falling apart, and I was consuming untold volumes of food. But on the outside, it looked like I was okay, except for my nervous disposition, okay? He had a nervous disposition. Now, um, he didn't do any drinking until he was 35. That's these youngins who think that they can get away with it, too, without drinking, right? We read about that a little bit ago. So he became so violent when he was intoxicated, he had to be put away. You know, they didn't have these halfway houses and stuff back there. When you drank and you went nuts, they put you in the asylum. They had jails. They had um, no AA meetings. It was the Oxford group back then, right? And the Oxford group... This is interesting because it says that he came into contact with us. And I'm assuming, and I've heard many teachers say this, that it's Bill and uh, Bob. And we told him what we knew of alcoholism. Well, what did they know? They knew what Dr. Silkworth had said, and thank goodness Silkworth had told Bob this. Don't leave with the spiritual thing. Give him your own experience about the powerlessness, about the mind and body being broken, the hopelessness. The allergy of the body, the obsession of the mind. Let them know about the physical. And the answer we found. They gave him the spiritual part afterwards. Their need, his need to find God. Because remember, this is the Oxford group. So they would, they would be telling them about a need to find God. And it said he made a beginning. Now, I've, I've heard a couple of things about this, and it's really irrelevant whether, to me, it's irrelevant whether it was three months, whether or not. But the information that I find interesting, if you look on page 14 in Bill's story, it says that this guy failed to enlarge his spiritual life. And if we go to page um, 14 in Bill's story, at the bottom of that page it says, um, I'm going to read this quickly. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it important to work with others as he had worked with me. Faith without works is dead, he said. And how appalling true for the alcoholic. And here's the line. 
For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, he could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again, and if he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it's just like that. So that paragraph really says the exact language. So it looks to me like, and again, this is just my, my take on it, is that those Oxford steps, there was only six of them. It looks like he went through that process, but he didn't work with others. He did get his family reassembled, and that's another thing that they talk about in the book, too. They talk about it, and I think it's in the forward to the first edition, to where the reason that people got back together was the reassembling, the rejoining of families, the recoveries in the families. That was the attraction for the program. The reuniting of families. So um, from that information, I just gleaned that this guy here did not follow through with the rest of the program. And the bottom line for me is that he made a beginning, and for me, this says that just putting down the food is not enough. Just putting down the food is not enough. It's just the beginning. A person who's powerless over compulsive overeating like me has to find a power greater than themselves to maintain the sobriety, the abstinence, to maintain it, to get permanent. It doesn't happen by me wanting to just will it or treating only one part of my disease. This is the second half of step one. This is that information behind the punctuation there, that M dash, the unmanageability. It says, yet he got drunk. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened, and this is his story. He came to work on Tuesday. He felt irritated. He had some words with the boss. I'm just gleaning through it right now. He felt that he, he decided that he would go out to the country. He'd go to a roadside place, get a bite to eat. No intention of uh, drinking. Just thought he'd have a sandwich. And he thought he might find somebody to buy a car, right? He had eaten there many times during the times he was sober, he's saying. Now, here's where it gets tricky, where insanity, where the obsession takes over without his permission. I sat down at the table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. Still no thought of drinking. I ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Then, boom, suddenly, the obsession just walked in. No permission given to it or anything. Suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that it, if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed that I wasn't being any too smart, but I felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. Experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into my milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. Thus began, <laughs> thus is one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Right? And for me, that suddenly the thought crossed my mind looks like this. I go out with the family to, um, I'm early in my recovery work, let's say, and I go out to the, with the family to a Chinese restaurant, my haunt, because somebody's having a big affair at Aunt Bessie's 80th, whatever, and I can't miss it. I'm still early in my recovery. My mind hasn't been treated. And I'm only going to have the steamed dish. I'm resolute. That's all I'm going to have. I'm not going to mess with it. My, my business is on my plate. I've been abstinent. I know, what I, can, I know my abstinent choices. 
I get to the restaurant, and I have my abstinent choices. But little by slowly, my mind is contemplating and thinking, hey, you know what, might not be so bad if I just get a small order of wings. I'm just going to have the wings. I'm not going to get the rib tips. I'm not going to get the fried rice. I'm not going to get anything else. That's exactly what I'm going to do. Uh, you know what, it may not be so bad since I had those wings. That, that's not a problem. You know what, well, let me get item fill in the blank. And before you know it, it might not happen that night at the function with the family because I want to eat like, a, you know, normal, quote, unquote. I may get home later and eat everything in the house, even those pantry items, those things that I normally would not mess with. And thus would begin one more trip back to OA in the rooms for Chelsea. With the threat of getting on high blood medication, with the threat of possible divorce. I've been in relationships where the, um, uh, the gentleman did not sign on for what I ended up turning out to be because I might have been able to control my weight and get thin to meet someone, but I couldn't stay that way because once I got into the relationship and the pressure, and at any time I got restless, irritable, and discontented, I'd had to eat. None of that mattered. None of that mattered. And I had knowledge because I'd been in and around these rooms, I told you, for some time. But I had the foolish idea that if I just ordered just the chicken wings, nothing else, none of the other things, that I would be okay. And I had that knowledge about myself like Jim. Yet, for all the reasons for not eating compulsively, I easily pushed them inside for the foolish idea that I could just order the chicken wings and I would be okay. I wouldn't get anything else. And that didn't seem to work out right. So whatever the precise definition, and now Bill writes this here part, of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? You may think this an extreme case. To us, it is not far-fetched. For this kind of thinking has been characteristic of every single one of us. We have sometimes reflected more than Jim did upon the consequences, but there's always been that curious mental phenomenon that paralleled with our re sound reasoning. There inevitably ran some sanely, insanely trivial excuse for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea won out. Next day we'd ask ourselves in all earnest and sincerity how it could have happened. And um, from my experience, this definition fits me to a T. My lack of proportion when it came to going anywhere, going to the family cookout, saying that I'm being just totally, I don't need to pack my meal. I know my abstinent food. I'll just select the items that I can have. Knowing somewhere inside of me knew that I was giving myself permission then to be able to say, well, they don't have anything here that I can't. I'm going to have to eat, so I have to have something. Instead of having prepared and packed for myself, which would have been a reasonable thought, the insane idea that I could just select from the choices that are on my food plan would be okay. My sound reasoning did not win out. My unhealthy thinking took over. Not even thinking about the consequences. And it says, in some circumstances, we've gone out deliberately to get drunk, feeling ourselves justified by nervousness, anger, worry, depression, jealousy, or the like. 
But even in this type of beginning, we're obliged to admit that our justifications for the spree was insanely insufficient. Here we go. Insufficient. Ineffective. We're talking about ineffectiveness. Ineffective defense. Our ism is running amok here. In light of what always happens, our ism takes over that mind, that broken mind. We now see when we began to drink deliberately instead of casually, there was little serious or effective thought. Effective. Oh, man. Ineffective. During this period of premeditation, planned out. I already planned that I wasn't going to pack my food. Remember we just said that? Wasn't going to pack my food for the cookout. Note of the terrific consequences of what they might be. The delusion, the lie. Chelsea, it's going to be different this time. Because once the obsession takes over your mind without your permission, it plants that delusion in your head that this time it's going to be different. And an obsession takes over the whole mind. There's no room for any other thoughts in there. There's no room to call a sponsor. You can't, if, you have, if the obsession is the only thought we have, there's no other thoughts. It's the only thought. And we don't know we have it because it takes control without our permission. And then you're there. You, you can't call a sponsor. You can't go journal. You can't utilize any of the tools, which are great. But they're of no use if you can't access them because the obsession has your mind. And all you can do is act out on it because you have a biological mandate once you ingest any of your binge foods, engage in any of your binge behaviors, compulsive overeating, because some of us could eat anything. We could eat lettuce to the, to the oomph degree just so we can experience the effect of eating compulsively. Only an entire psychic change will fix it. And they're saying that our behaviors like this jaywalker, the guy who likes to run in and out of traffic, me who likes to run in and out of restaurants. The doctor just told me I'm going to be seriously ill. Doesn't matter. I'm going to take my chances and dart in and out of a bakery. I'm going to dash in and out of the deli. I'm going to go get a couple of hoagies, subs. I'm going to do that. I'm going to try my luck. The doctor says, oh, you really should not be eating fried foods then I'm going to bake them until they're so crispy that it seems like they're fried. The obsession, hence powerlessness, kicks in. Kicks in. My spiritual condition is crumbled. It's in shambles. The unmanageability has gone untreated. The obsession gets back in there, and then the allergy kicks in, and I'm jaywalking. I'm running in and out of places just eating and eating. Even if I'm on, in a scooter, I'm scooting in and out because I still got to eat, right? I'm going to quit. My Monday's going to be my starting day or Monday to Friday. I'm only going to eat certain things on the weekends. But by Tuesday, I'm eating again. And it's not because I wanted to. It's because I had to. So I have to start all over again. And the obsession keeps telling me it's okay to do that. And then I start jaywalking again, right? I try every means possible to get it out of my head, every means possible, and nothing works. Nothing works, right? And they say that we can think that the jaywalker story, and you can read that when you get a chance in full, gives us a full illustration They say that it might be too ridiculous, but if you do substitute compulsive overeating, binging and purging, 
the whole spectrum of our disease, our illness, you can see that it's strangely insane. <laughs> We've been strangely insane. And they say it's strong language, but isn't it true? And some of, us, you, some of you are thinking, yes, you, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellows did. Or more are we likely to, for we understand ourselves so well after what you've told us, self-knowledge, that such things cannot happen again. We have not lost everything in life through drinking and certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. I'm out of the rooms. I've lost my weight. Okay, I've done my food plan. It's great. Hey, look, I don't belong in here with you guys. I'm getting ready to head back out. I'm looking good. Right? Thanks for the information. I'm not the real deal. I'm not it. So, And it says here, and this is, uh, to me, the main purpose of this lesson that we're having today, that may be true of certain uh, uh, non-alcoholic people who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours. That's like my sister who can, um, you know, gained a ton of weight, went through something, gained a ton of weight. The doctor told her she was going to be sick if she didn't get on, if she would be ending up on blood pressure medicine and all. She, she was like, oh, I got to do something about this. And she did. She had been eating heavy, gained a lot of weight, but she was able, her brain hadn't, she didn't have the two components. She didn't have the two components, allergy, the body, obsession of the mind. So she was able to stay stopped without any angst, without any hand-wringing. But the actual and potential alcoholic or compulsive overeater like Chelsea, with hardly any exception, and here it is, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is the point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize and smash home. Here they are smashing things again, breaking these things to smithereens so we can't try to put it back together again like Humpty Dumpty. We can't do it. They're trying to smash this home. Self-knowledge avails us nothing. And I need to connect my experience. This is what we, I need to identify in and connect my experiences so I can get this information and work towards a transformation. Then they give us Fred. They give us Fred here now. Fred's a partner in a well-known accounting firm. Here's another case study in case we need more information. He has a good income, fine home, happily married, promising children. He's so attractive a personality, he makes friends with everyone. Successful businessman. Here we are again to all appearances. These masks that we wear. He's stable, well-balanced. Yet he's an alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he had gone to recover from a bad case of the jitters, right? It was his first experience of this kind, and he was so ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. For a few days, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. Never occurred to Fred that perhaps he could not stop, in spite of the character standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic, much less accept the spiritual remedy of his problem. We told him what we knew of alcoholism. 
he was interested and conceded that he may have some of the symptoms, but he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that his humiliating experience plus his knowledge had acquired would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix that. We heard no more from Fred for a while, and one day we were told he was back in the hospital. Well, let's go back to that. So Fred here has it all. He's not living on the streets or anything, right? He's a partner in a firm, an accounting firm, so he's smart. He got his degree in accounting. It takes something to do that. His income is good, got a wife and all, good, a whole bunch of good stuff going on here. But he's an alcoholic. But this is the interesting part of this part of the uh, text of this lesson. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, right, he was far from admitting it. He said, Fred, the authors here say, Fred would not even believe himself an alcoholic, much alone accept the spiritual experience. So what did they do? They just told him what they knew of alcoholism. If you remember Jim's story, they told him what they knew of alcoholism and the spiritual part. Because Jim was reticent to admit that he was that. But Fred can't even admit that he isn't, so why would they even bother bother him with the spiritual part? Remember, Dr. Silkworth said, give him the problem first. But if he can't even connect with the problem, why in the world would he go after the spiritual part? So it would be a waste of their time to even go through that. But they let him know what he was up against, right? And they didn't hear anything for him a while. Then it says, one day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. Well, this is his second experience now with getting, you know, getting hangovers, withdrawals, that shakiness, those withdrawals. And now we're having a doctor give him that frosty appeal that, you know, he really might be sick. That, that doesn't mean a thing. Dr. Silkworth told us frosty appeals avail us nothing. You know, that doesn't mean a thing. The doctor doesn't have a message of depth and weight that could reach this guy. So, of course, it, it wasn't the Bill and Bob were able to give him what he was up against, but he thought that, you know, again, thanks for the information. So then it says that here was a chap that was absolutely convinced that he had stopped drinking, who had no excuse for drinking. He wasn't down on his luck. He hadn't been, uh, he didn't have a horrible wife who was, you know, running around on him. The kids weren't involved with drugs and all this other stuff or what have you. He had it going on. So they said, let him tell you about why it was that he was, for me, face down in the food again. I was much impressed with what you fellas said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. I rather appreciated your ideas about the subtle insanity which precedes the first drink, but I was confident but I was confident it could not happen to me after what I had learned. I reasoned I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows, that I had been unusually successful in licking my other problems, other personal problems, and that I would therefore be successful where men had failed, where you men had failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident that it would be only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business, and for a time all was well. I had no trouble refusing drinks and began to wonder if I had not been making too hard work of a simple matter. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I had been out of town before during this uh, particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about that. Hang on here. Physically, I felt fine. 
Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. In the end of a perfect day, it was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. I went to my hotel room, leisurely dressed for dinner. Here we go, obsession coming in without our permission. As I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to my mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. I figured it would be nice for me to have a plate of fries with my meal. I won't get the burger. I won't get the bun. I won't get all the extra sauces and stuff. I'll just have just one plate, and that will be it. So I ordered the fries. He ordered the cocktail and the meal. And then I, that went so well. Here we go again. This is all being, showing us again. Then he ordered it. After dinner, he took a walk. When he returned to the hotel, once again, the obsession coming in, no permission at all. It struck me. A highball would be fine before going to bed. So I stepped into the bar and had one. <laughs> I remember having several more that night and plenty the next morning. I can remember eating all through the night, waking up with packages, boxes, bags, and bones all around me, only to go downstairs and prepare a pound of bacon, a couple of half a dozen of eggs, a half a loaf of bread and toast and extra butter and all these things, having just done that all night, right? That's what it looked like for me, just like what it looks like for Fred here. I can identify. I can identify in. When I returned to the hotel and he got that highball, he remembered having several more. I was able to do that. He had a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane bound for New York and uh, finding a friendly taxicab driver at a landing field instead of his wife. The driver escorted me for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital and the unbearable mental and physical suffering. Not only does this information here in this paragraph speak to the fact that the obsession has taken over, and it also speaks to the fact of how selfish I am when I'm in my disease. Fred didn't even think to maybe call his wife or family. He said he had a wonderful family and everything. If you had a good family like that, chances are they're concerned. Where the heck are you? If you're in a drunken stupor, you're not making phone calls. Remember, the obsession doesn't allow any other thoughts in. No, you're not doing any rational thinking when you're obsessed. What about the, the wife? It's just crazy. Three days gone, and he's just out on a bender. No regard or the family could be worried or anything. As soon as I gained my ability to think, as soon as I regained it, I went carefully over the evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remember what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they had prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, I would one day give way before some trivial reason to have a drink. Well, just that did happen and more, for what I'd learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots, the obsession taking permission without your, taking control without your permission. Willpower and all has no, no kind of defense. 
completely ineffective against our ism. At least Jim vaguely sensed when he put the milk in that he was doing something wrong. Fred didn't even give it a second thought. That's because there was no room for any second thoughts once the obsession takes over. And he had promised, he had a very firm promise that he was going to stay on guard and exercise his willpower. So the two members of the uh, Alcoholics Anonymous came to see him and they grinned, which he didn't like, and then asked me if I thought to myself that, as, I thought myself an alcoholic and if it was I really licked this time. I had to concede both propositions. They piled heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality, such as I had exhibited in Washington, was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. Then they outlined the spiritual answerer and program of action, which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow, but the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out the window. That was not easy. But the moment I made up my mind to go through the process, I had a curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved. As, it, as in fact it proved to be. Quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. I have since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. My old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not have exchanged its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back even if I could. So we go back to unpack that a little bit. He had to fully concede. Remember page 30 told us that when we first started out this study, we were told that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were this thing, that we were alcoholic. And he is conceding to both propositions, that he's alcoholic, and here's what's really important, if I were really licked this time. Both questions had to be answered and fully conceded to. And they piled the heaps of evidence, their story, what it was like, what happened and what it's like for them now. And they talked about the mental condition, an alcoholic's mentality, these broken minds, the inherent defect that allows the obsession to take control without our permission. And left untreated, We will eat and trigger the allergy, which will set off the biological mandate that we continue to eat. And if we're lucky enough to stop, we won't be able to stay stopped because of the mental issue, our ism. And because we have no effective defense to stop it from coming in and taking over, we are powerless. This is hopelessness. Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. He had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. That's the whole point, hopelessness. The relationship we'll establish by finishing the rest of this process blocks the obsession. But we have to have what Dr. Silkworth said, an entire psychic change. We have to do what Dr. Silkworth said, entire abstinence. There can be no middle ground. 
we have hitting bottom and getting help from a higher power. Says many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, a staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. What you say about general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is, in my opinion, correct. As to two of you men whose stories I have heard, there's no doubt in my mind that you were 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Had you offered yourselves as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I had been able to avoid it. People like you are too heartbreaking. Though not a religious person, I've found respect for the spiritual approach in cases such as yours. For most cases, there's virtually no other solution. So now they're going to hit us one more time, just in case all the evidence that they've given us, the heaps of evidence that they've given us, the examples that they've laid out for us, doesn't matter how much you know, it doesn't matter about how much willpower you have, you have to fully concede that you are out of ideas. No lurking notions. All the information that we've gotten up to this point about the physical, Bill laying it out for us, giving us an example of what it looks like. There is a solution, giving us information so that we can see what we were up against and that what it's going to require to get a defense sufficient and effective to beat this adversary until we really give in and recognize to that there's little or nothing that could be done. Seemingly hopelessness of our situation by going through this material and looking at all the examples, it should make clear and we can be able to discover the truth about our illness, the lack of defense against the first bite, the lack of defense, powerless. We're powerless against having the obsession take control without our permission. We are inadequate, ineffective, no effective mental defense. So the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few cases. And, of course, I wanted to be part of that few because it's just I could not accept that I was this thing. Except in a few cases, neither he nor any other human Human being, there's no human power. Human power is marshaled by the will, is zip, nothing, nada. Ineffective against our ism. His defense must come. There's no middle ground there. His defense must come from a power greater than himself. And that concludes my presentation for today. And um, I'm really grateful to have been able to give service. And one of the things that I just wanted to um, close up with and say is that I'm really grateful to um, be able to have my divine director in my life today because I can call upon Dee Dee to please help me to do the next right thing and um, follow through this process and live these principles a day at a time and enlarge my spirituality so that I can combat that with the help of Dee Dee. Thank you very much. I pass. Thank you very much, Chelsea, for thoroughly unpacking Chapter 3 more about alcoholism and for offering us your personal insights as it relates to the obsession of the mind. Thank you very much for your service this morning. Chelsea's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording. Now we're going to transition to questions. 
If you have a question for Chelsea, press star 1 and identify yourself, please. Good morning. A vision for you. This is Elita. Elita. Yes, hold on. Okay, anyone else? Jane M. Jane M. M. Who else? Star one to unmute. Question. Eve. I didn't catch your first name. I'm sorry. Eve. Eve. Okay. All right. Let's start with those three. Alita, go ahead, please. Hi. Can you hear me? Sure. Um, hi. Great, great talk. I'd like to know how important it is to work this program every, every, every day. Um, is it possible to uh, have you had the experience that you work in it very you know you're working it and then and then for whatever reason a couple of days went by and and then you go back and work it again and these couple of days did not affect you um i just want to know how important it is to work it every day thank you uh, well thanks for the question it's life or death i mean it, i don't have to turn it on or turn it off it has to be an integral part of my life if I'm turning it on or turning it off, um, in my opinion, I'm not working anything. I'm just turning it on and turning it off. It, this way of life is not a theory, the big book tells me. It has to be practiced in all my affairs. And it does, it's not something that I'll pack and unpack or, you know, I'll live these principles. They'll be car- become a part of my living. I think that's really the answer that I have. So I don't um, turn it on or turn it off. I try. I try to the best of my ability a day at a time to make it an integral part of my uh, language of my heart. Thank you, Alita. Jean M. Your turn. Hello? Yes. I'm, I'm sitting here this morning practically in tears. I've been abstinent a lot of years. And to hear this broken down again and hear my story, the same as yours, over and over again, has been um, like going to church. Uh, But it's like I have a sponsor who I've had for years that I love dearly that was absent for a lot of years. And uh, in recent times, she'll go two or three weeks and she'll pick up something again and then she'll start all over again. And uh, I I really want to stick with her. Um, but I don't know any more to tell her. I tell her every single thing I know, every single thing I've heard, everything I've got. And I just, I'm at a loss as to what to do about it. If you have any suggestions, I'll listen. Well, I mean, perhaps maybe you're not the one that will be, you know, you won't be carrying the lantern to light her path. Maybe someone else might be able to work with her. But um, there's nothing you can do. That's probably why you feel so frustrated, because only we can do the work ourselves. We can't do it for anybody else. So maybe the best, kindest thing you can do is to... um, you know, point her to the direction of maybe somebody else that can walk her through this process because she'll have to walk it and have her own experience. I've thought of that, and I'm going to take it and say 
She's been on vacation, and I'm going to see how she's done while she's been on vacation. And as tough as it is, I've known this woman for 20 years. Yeah, well, as we read here today in the material, you know, th- th- these are inside jobs. These are mental things that are of our own internal things. We can't do anything on our own human power. No, she doesn't. I, I just have a feeling she has not connected with the spiritual side of this disease as much as I have. And um, and to know that it, it is a spiritual program, you don't get well unless you grab onto something higher than yourself. Mm. Well, take it to prayer. Take it to prayer. If you're a praying woman, pray and get your answers from your creator. All right, but I just want to say I love you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Jean. Eve A, your turn. Thank you. Chelsea, thank you very much for your share. My question is, you talked about the obsession of the mind and it being all-consuming and no other thoughts can come through. In your early abstinence before you had the psychic change, what actions would you take to help yourself so you wouldn't pick up? Oh, good question. Uh, some of the things I did was, I, first of all, I leaned into the work that I was um, working on, and my guide gave me some suggestions, and I actually took them. I, did, I listened to a lot of audio. I did writing. I utilized the tools to help me get through the process. That's when they came in handy. And I didn't just, in between, uh, in between working with my guide, I didn't just um, wait until I talked to her again. I explored the program I in. I got involved with the material. I started doing different types of recovery activities like um, research, learning more about the Alcoholics Anonymous, learning more about um, what my disease was, and listening to many different perspectives, because I'm just one person. I don't know anything either. A lot of all this stuff that I'm saying is all available to everybody. I don't know a thing. I've heard a lot, I've read a lot, and I've had the experiences to back up, to prove what these people are saying is true. So that's really what I did, and I kept my mind filled with recovery activities, so that way when, when the food thoughts cropped up, I had something to combat them with, and I would do the outreach. I did, I leaned into the work I was doing, and I took an active participation in my recovery. That's what I did. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Eve. Who else has a question for Chelsea this morning? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Kathy Kay. Hey, Kathy. One moment, please. Anyone else? There was a lot developed this morning, Chapter 3, more about alcoholism. Great opportunity. Debbie. Debbie, okay. And anyone else? Melinda H. And Melinda H. All right, Kathy Kay, your turn. Thanks, Leah, for your service. And thank you, Chelsea. It was wonderful to hear you this morning. I did get on a little late, so I'm not sure if this question was addressed, but um, I'm really curious to know more about how you developed your relationship with your divine director, uh, because I know you've 
talked about being agnostic, and uh, so I'd just like to hear more about that. Thank you. Okay. Um, I, my divine director's um, connection came, first of all, because I had a guide that allowed me to develop what that would mean to me, and I was able to develop that I'm not God. And the way that I found out more and more about how my divine director, Didi, I call it, is in my soul, it's inside of me already, is that I am able to be still. And for whatever reason, I feel I connect with the universe. And I feel like it's not a thing. It's not a thing outside of me that I had to. And each day I'm getting closer and learning more and finding out that it is an intrinsic part of me. It's not separate from me. It's not something from outside that I have to um, make, go outside of, of myself to reach or feel. I feel like um, I developed it by studying. I do a lot of different studying of spiritual material because spirituality to me is where my divine direction comes from, just the whole spirit of the universe. I can walk outside and there's air to breathe. I can't make that happen. So I know there's something greater than myself. I can't I can sow grass seeds, I can put them down and everything, but I can't make them germinate and grow. I can't do that. I can water them and everything. I can't make colors. I can't do that. But whatever's at the totality of it all can. And by reading other people and sharing with different spiritual people, especially people who are very religious, I've learned a lot from them. And having a full religious background, I've been able to glean what I feel is my spirit, is my soul, is me. And the great reality I connect with, and that to me is divineness. And I can tell when it's not because I'm not other-centered, I'm self-centered. And that is really the delineation. Wherever my heart is, is where God lives for me, and Didi is what I call God. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Kathy Kay. Debbie H., please. Yes, good morning, everybody. Um, thank you so much for the meeting. I always get a lot out of what you have to say, Leah. And I, I don't know if this is as much a question as it is, kind of a of a message from God that I'm calling you guys from in the hospital because I began to bleed internally and they don't know where it's coming from at this point but I have been of course abusing my body and my stomach with all of this compulsive binging, binge eating for so long I've been in the program I've had years of abstinence I'm now in years of relapse, and I keep thinking that I can do it my way and take the parts of the program that will work for me, that I want to work with me without doing the work that I think I'm now getting the message is so necessary to do. And um, so I, what I really heard, Chelsea, was that as the way that I think, that what I think is what precedes to what I, the way I act. And um, I've been so food obsessed that all the people, all the, all the tasks, all the, everything in my life has taken a backseat to my obsession over food. And I'm taking this 
experience as a wake-up call, however it should turn out to be. And it's really because of listening in to you people with their strong, powerful spiritual messages that uh, that I'm getting where I hope I'm getting. So I just bless you all and thank you. I pass. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being there. Thank you, Debbie. May this apparent breakdown be your opportunity for a breakthrough. I hope so. Thank you. Melinda H. Yes, good morning. What a wonderful um what a wonderful meeting. Um I uh, have health issues, and I've talked to a lot of uh, people, and I understand, you know, I intellectually get what I need to do. However, my emotions are in control, and I assume I'm allowing them to be in control. And I think what my question is, and you may have answered this, Chelsea, um, how were you able to make the commitment to change? Well, I was beaten into a state of reasonable in spite of disease. I I had no choice. I had been beaten to a pulp. And I acted on, I actually took the action and just followed through. That's really all I did. I picked up, I, someone was in front of me. Like I shared with you about those three Ebbies that I saw. I went up to someone. They offered to walk me through the text, and I actually followed through. That's really all that, um, you know, I can say about that. I'm no doctor or anything, so I don't know anything about any medical um, issues. I don't know if that helps you anything. Yes, it it does. Thank you, Melinda. Who else has a question for Chelsea? Lisa M. Lisa M. Anyone else? Don't Hi, this is Sheila H. Susan S. I have a I have a question. Susan S. And there was another person. Sheila, Sheila H. If I can. Sheila H. And Lisa S. And Lisa S. Anyone else? This is going to be the last invitation for questions. Grab hold. Remember how you went out in the middle of the night to get your binge foods? <laughs> Didn't that take some uh, motivation? Uh, who has a question? Don't be shy. This is Laura G. I didn't catch your first name. Laura G. Laura G. Okay. Linda R. Linda R. Yes. Okay. Lisa M., let's start with you. Hi, hi. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Chelsea, so much. I uh, really got a lot out of your story. I was so glad to hear you. I, I hear you on the line often, and uh, I really relate to uh, your experience. Um, my question is um, about the urgency. You know, I, I work with people sometimes. I go to meetings sometimes, and they're big book meetings, and it just, you know, I, I don't know. I feel like I need to do this now that it's just so hard to to you know find anybody to you know 
gets through these steps quickly. I mean, I have a feeling that, you know, um, Bill and Bob weren't, you know, taking a year to do each step. I, I think that they were doing it really fast. And I, I'm just having a hard time finding somebody who gets that. And uh, I, so I don't know, is that just me or is that, you know, is it a long study? Is it a short study? You know, just what your opinion about that. Thanks. I mean, it's going to be what it is for you, whatever effort you put in. If you feel like you're working with somebody that's not taking you through quick enough, get someone else. These are life or death issues. You don't have a year to, you know, mess around with it. Only you will be able to do that. I could tell you anything, and it won't matter if you don't take the action. You know, that's really the bottom line. And if you feel like you're not getting with the uh, results you need, keep it moving. You know, you can still be friends with that person or whatever, but if you need to get with somebody that's going to walk you through these steps so you can have your experience, the psychic change sufficient enough to arrest this um, disease, to be an effective defense against it, and then go out and help others. So really, you just got to decide. You know, if you procrastinate and you allow others to procrastinate for you, there'll be nothing but procrastination. So only you can do that um, yourself. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Lisa M. Susan S., please, your turn. Susan S. in St. Louis. And, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that you shared about, um, you know, more than one obsession and um, um, addiction. And I just am wondering, how did you manage through the steps? And with do you have different sponsors? Did you work both um, programs at the same time? Just wondering how you manage that. Thank you. Well, I got sober first, and I was a dry drunk. And I picked up with from what I didn't get from the alcohol, because alcohol is basically sugar and grains. I did a lot of bread eating and stuff, and I the compulsive overeater just really took over. I was always a compulsive overeater. And um, it was just really switching one addiction for the other. Addiction is addiction. I still needed to walk through this process and have my psychic change. That is what fixed it. Recovery, recovery, cover, as um, Harlan tells us. You know, that's really all that I did was actually take the action and do the work. doesn't matter what the addiction is. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, Susan S. Sheila H., please. Hi, did you call Sheila H.? Indeed. Thank you so much. Sheila H., recovering a day at a time from New York. Chelsea, thank you so much. Um, So much identification. You know, I got some clarity on my road because I was one of those people that didn't understand the different folds of this because I could pick up something and put it down. And you made it helped me to see the the merry-go-round, I should say, the merry-go-round of this disease and how if I put one thing down, I pick up another thing and another thing. And what you said that struck such a chord for me was it took me a while to figure um, what I needed was already within me. It wasn't in something outside of me. I needed to connect to a power higher than myself and actually turn this food over. For me, my question for you was, was it to a point that you just you tell you just hit a bottom and did you have to develop a trust with the person to do the work that you need or did you just get to a point where it didn't matter you were in pain you needed help 
So for me, it took time to develop a relationship of trust. Did you experience that, or you just got to a point where it didn't matter? If this person was helping you, I'm working with them. Thanks. It's the latter. This person's helping me. I'm working with them. She could have told me to run around the room on one leg and whistle Yankee Doodle. I would have done it. That's what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) Thank you so much for sharing, and thank you for your fellowship. Thank you, Shields. (laughs) Thank you, Sheila. We're all picturing you doing that now, Chelsea. (laughs) Lisa S. Lisa S., please. Hi, yes, Chelsea, thank you so much. You were so clear and really outlined the addiction and the obsession and the powerlessness. I have a question for you. I listened to A Vision for You, and I also listened to Hour of Power. And Hour of Power, the people there, they believe in a spiritual recovery, but they don't believe in a food plan. And in A Vision for You, I believe that you do believe in a food plan, and I was wondering if you could just address this. Address what? Like you just made statements. Do you have a question? Yeah, I mean, how I mean, do you think it's possible to recover without a food plan? Oh, I don't, that's an individual thing. I don't get involved with people's food and thing. I couldn't manage a plate of food on my own. So what I think about that is irrelevant. If somebody can do it, great. If they can't, and then they have to do whatever they can do that works. I don't want to judge anybody or anything. I'm out of the judging business. I don't know is the answer. Lisa S., thank you for the question. Laura G., please go ahead. Leah, did you call her Laura G? Yes, go ahead. Laura G. Um, good morning, um, Chelsea. Good morning. Um, I want to ask this and not be complicated, so hopefully it won't be. Um, I wrote it down, so I'll just finish. I'll tell you when I'm done reading, all right? Mm-hmm. Okay, did you or do you feel or experience the defect of arrogance, or at least that's my interpretation of arrogance, it is a defect. More finitely, in self or in others, especially in the reality of being recovered, especially when we, we meaning us compulsive overeaters, see or identify the power it has over us. I, I know about take the best, leave the rest, but I'm really struggling with this this morning, and I just, it, is it clear? And I'm done reading. Okay, and what is your question? Could you reiterate the question? Did you or do you feel the experience of arrogance, especially being recovered? No. I don't feel the experience of arrogance. I don't know anything. Every day is every day I recover. One day at a time. There's no long list of, you know, I could wake up tomorrow with a bright idea and be face down in the food again. There's no arrogance involved. There's no room for arrogance. I'm too busy trying to do the will of my divine director. I've been fired as my manager. So I don't have the luxury of arrogance. And I agree with you. I think it is some kind of a character defect. But um, once you get involved with this work and it's really a part of your life, 
You spend time trying to grow in effectiveness and understanding and to be helpful to others. There's not really any room for all this other, these other machinations when I was involved with self. See, I was self-centered, selfishness. That was the root of my problem, driven by a hundred forms of fear and all these other things, dishonesty and all. All that is dealt with is my inventory. This is why it's important to go through the process to break down these arrogance and everything. But as far as um, me feeling any kind of arrogance or anything, I, again, I don't get involved in that because I'm being driven by a much higher source. Thanks for the question. Thank you for the answer. Helps immensely. Thank you, Laura. Our final question comes from Linda R. this morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for your service, Chelsea. Linda R. recovered in North Carolina. You know, um, most of my question was already answered, but I wanted to ask you this. Uh, First of all, I really got a lot out of your share today. It was so clear and, you know, very crystal clear you know, the mental obsession that follows the physical cravings in our, you know, program. Um, You know, I've been in program a very long time and done the steps, and I, you know, done the steps, I'm recovered. And even when I came in, though, I did, you know, do the big book. I've been studying the big book for many years, and um, thank you, dear God, I'm recovered today. But I just wanted to ask you as far as your technique of sponsoring. I heard what you said to Jean, you know, as far as like if people are, you know, slipping and sliding, you know, to let them go to go to another guy. However, where do you, you know, for me, what's coming up is humility. You know, I sponsor some people that are late studies. I mean, it's taken me a very long time to get where I am today, but by the grace of God, where are you as far as like the humility, you know, every morning I ask God to, you know, accept and embrace both sides of me and, and that I shouldn't accept and embrace both sides of myself, good or bad. And when you have somebody that slips sometimes, I just want to know your sponsorship approach. Like, do you just drop them right away or do you give them some time? I mean, I'm thinking the humility, you know, I don't do that. Like I, sometimes I wait around and they do come through, you know, people do slip in the program with their food sometimes, you know, doing the work brings up a lot of emotions and it's not an excuse. However, I I do I do sponsor with a lot of tolerance. So I just want to know, like, when you sponsor, what's your style? Do you drop them right away just because they slip? That's what my question is. Thank you. Okay. Well, first of all, I don't sponsor. I guide people through this text, and sometimes, more often, very often, we establish a relationship even after the work is done. Sometimes they'll go work with somebody else. You, you don't have to be wedded to just one individual. Give freely of what we find. That could mean with anybody. But I don't drop or add anybody. They do it themselves. I'm in the business of carrying the message for Didi. And if I feel confused, I turn in to Didi. Every time I turn in to Didi for direction in my life, I see the direction in my life coming back from Didi. And I don't get involved with, again, if somebody, if you, I don't know, you know, how involved you get with people's work or working with them. I have people that still that I've worked with calling their food to me because they want it for honesty, not because I've asked them to. I just keep it really to the book. 
And if the book says that, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing, that's what I do. If they have an issue, often I'll take them to um, page. We just read today how uh, Jim, six times in succession, to his consternation, he drank again. It says we worked with him. They didn't drop him. They, we worked with him. He got it together. But that we don't have no kind of special powers. People are going to do what they're going to do. And all you can do is be available to help them. And, if you, you know, at some point they'll either drop off on their own or you will realize that you don't have special powers and you will make the suggestion that perhaps maybe it's better someone else will guide them through this process. You might have to get with yourself on this issue. You know, you might have to turn to your God and get situated with all this yourself. Okay? Thank you. Mm-hmm. Linda, thank you for the question. Everybody, thanks uh, for your questions. And, of course, Chelsea, thank you for giving so freely this morning. I'm going to close from page 164 in the big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.